Hello, everyone. Welcome to Quantum Catechesis. I'm Father Joe Krupp, and you are not in today. Today, today is Wednesday, August something or other in the year of our Lord, 2022. Is it the 42nd? It is the 42nd of August. Oh, the 24th of August. Sorry, folks. Carrie's a little drunk. We just had delicious sandwiches. I had a bacon turkey ranch wrap, and it was delicioso, which is Spanish for delicioso, yummy, in my belly. So we have been walking through the crucifix. Oh, do we have a guest tomorrow? I forgot to ask you. No. So here's what's cool. The second crusade, I think I told you last week, the, se- the third crusade is amazing. So I am going to walk us through the second crusade and introduce us to a key guy in the third one. And then tomorrow is the third crusade. Now, for those of you, and I understand if this is happening, um, you might be thinking, okay, can we get back to Jesus things, frankly, and off of this history? Uh, no. You don't think so? I worry about it. Okay. Well, we won't do this with every crusade. We won't. The second crusade, you'll see, probably won't take that long at all. The third crusade is the pivotal one. It changes all the rest of the crusades. Um, And then once we get past the third, I'll just give you a summary of the fourth, fifth, sixth, and the illustrious Seventh Crusade, which includes the Children's Crusade, which is not us at our best. That's when we decided, let's send a bunch of kids over there. Great idea. Uh, so anyway, uh, a huge thanks again to all my usual sources, but in particular, Austin Klein, who made this fantastic um kind of point by point of the Second Crusade so that we can take a look at it. Um, The beard should really have its own domain. My beard is currently engaged in a crusade with the rest of my face. (laughs) And the rest of my face is resisting it, uh, especially my head. (laughs) My head is at Accra or Acre, right? The one city the Crusaders never lose until the very end. So... um, You may remember that in the First Crusade, uh, it was a mess. This one's a mess. Uh, And a lot of it has to do with dissension. Uh, It's unpredictable. It's just unpredictable. Again, you were taught this is Christianity against Islam. And to some extent, sure. Islam blew up out of North Africa and conquered most of the known world. And the Crusades were the response of the Christians to try to take some of their stuff back. And the Crusades focused not just in the Middle East, but a lot in Spain. Remember, we went through all this. Spain was where the uh, Muslims and Christians really went to war. Greece, all these other places. But it wasn't always of a unified Christian army against a unified Muslim army. Uh, Especially in the first two crusades, you have Muslims fighting on the side of Christians, Christians fighting on the side of Muslims. The end of the first crusade was basically the last time I can think of where the Eastern Christians sided with the Western Christians, Uh, which is fascinating to think of. But... With that in mind, you may remember when we last left, the Crusaders had uh, almost by accident uh, taken many of these cities in the Middle East uh, that they were now going to make secure for Christians. And, you know, to be clear, Jerusalem was already secure for Christians, but it seemed like the Crusaders were like, man, we made this huge trip. We might as well kill everybody. Uh, And they did. And so what you've got in this second crusade, it starts with the act you might think, really? Yeah, this simple. Um, A Muslim leader who we're going to call Zengi, right? His real name, full name is Imad Adin Zengi, okay? Or Zengai, I can't remember. It's one of those, but he's dead. He doesn't care. He recap, whoops, I forgot to turn my ringer off. Sorry, hold on. Uh... And you can't hear it, right? It's in my hearing aids. It's so jarring. It's a little buzz. Yeah. Uh, this guy, Zengi, uh, or Zengai, recaptures the city of Edessa 
from the Crusaders. And in that process, Zengai becomes a huge hero in the Muslim world. And the Christians in the meantime, back in Europe, all of a sudden felt the stirrings of a second crusade. If the Muslims finally united again and did that, we should unite and head back into the Middle East. Okay. Um, in 1145, the Second Crusade launched, and it was an effort to recapture territory, territory lost to the Muslim armies, but you're going to see this one was a complete disaster. Uh, in the end, the only thing this accomplishes is a few small Greek towns were liberated for Christianity. But let's start with December 1st of 1045. Uh, the Pope with perhaps the best name, Eugene. Did you know we had a Pope Eugene? We had a few of them. This is Pope Eugene the third. And so they would say, Eugene, like that, when they wanted to call him. Hey, Eugene! Uh, he was from Montrose. Um, but anyway, Pope Eugene the third proclaimed a second crusade on December 1st of 1145, and his goal was, let's retake the cities that the Muslims retook from us retaking them from the Muslims. Yeah, isn't that great? Now that call was by the Pope was sent directly to King Louis the Seventh, And here's the crazy thing, King Louis the Seventh or Louis the Seventh, sorry, in France, He'd already been planning a crusade. He was planning and gathering his forces. And when the Pope sent word, I'm calling a crusade, he ignored it and disbanded his boys. So you can tell he really liked Pope Eugene. On March 13th, Saxon nobles were at a meeting in, Frank, in uh, Frankfurt and St. Bernard of Clairvaux uh, asked them to launch a crusade against the pagan Slavs in the East. This has nothing to do with the Middle East. And it's just a few short months after the Pope called for a crusade. So basically the Saxon nobles uh, asked Saint, who we call Saint Bernard of Clairvaux, we're just gonna call him Bernard of Clairvaux. Uh, so Bernard takes this message to Pope Eugene. The Germans want to crusade against the pagan Slavs. Okay, the Slavic people who have not yet converted to Christianity. Um, Pope Eugene gave them permission, right? He told the Germans, yeah, okay, you can go kill or convert the pagans in your territory. So that was early March. Now, in late March, St. Bernard of Clairvaux began to uh, travel all over Europe, and he was calling for a crusade against the Muslims. Uh, this is a letter he wrote to the Templars, quote, the Christian who slays the unbeliever in the holy war is sure of his reward. The more sure if he himself is slain. The Christian glories in the death of a pagan because Christ is thereby glorified. Let me just say this, oops. So, Bernard of Clairvaux is really the pushing force for the second crusade that goes to the Middle East. Uh, there was a crusade at this point against the Slavs who were pagans, but he's calling for one to go down and retake the Christian cities we just lost. Who's, who really takes this message to heart? King Louis VII. Uh, he was blown away by Bernard's preaching, and this is a common theme. Uh, when, when somebody wouldn't go on crusade, Bernard of Clairvaux would show up and convince them to. Uh, so King Louis VII and his wife Eleanor of Aquitaine decide to take up the crusade. So France's knights, that's a big deal to have France's knights going on this. Now, right away then, King, uh, the German king, Conrad III, jumps in. He, he, and he personally is going to lead his men into the crusade. Now, I'm going to give you a little end of the story here. They never arrive. They, they are killed on the way. But it was a big deal. France's knights and Germany's knights are now committed to crusade. And on June 1st, King Louis VII officially announced we're in. We got everything ready. We're ready to go. Now, 
Um, you remember Zengai, Zengi, the, the guy who took Edessa, he was assassinated by a servant he threatened to punish, right? He told the servant he was gonna punish him and the guy was like, I think if I kill you first, that might not happen. So he did. Now, this is important because this is a problem for the Muslims until a guy we're gonna meet at the end of this. The reason Christians were often able to travel so far and with so few people take so many cities back from the Muslims is because of Muslim disunity. Obviously, the European Knights were a huge deal. It's almost impossible to overstate them. But at the same time, one of the big issues is this. The Muslims finally had a great leader who conquered the Christians straight up in battle, and he gets assassinated. Okay, so that was in September of 1146. When you get to December of 1146, Conrad III arrives at Constantinople, but his army had been severely depleted. When they were crossing through Anatolia, they were almost completely wiped out. There was a river crossing that did not go well, and there was a crap load of Muslims just cherry picking them on the way. So when we get to 1147, you had some power structures in the Muslim world that began to collapse, particularly in North Africa. And you don't really need to remember that, it's just to remind you, there's a lot of disunity now in the Muslim world. In April of 1147, Pope Eugene III approved a crusade into Spain and Germany. So now he's saying up north, if you wanna kill the pagans or convert them, the Slavs you can, and you can also go retake Spain. Okay. And they've been cherry picking. You may remember they've been cherry picking at Spain. Uh, St. Bernard of Clairvaux wrote, quote, and, and again, I'm sorry, right? Uh, we expressly forbid that for any reason whatsoever, they should make a truce with these pagans, right? The, the pagans in Germany and in Spain until such time as either their religion or their nation be destroyed. Yikes, Bernard's a saucy man. And speaking of sauce, today's episode is brought to you by Heinz Ketchup. Perfect when slaughtering enemies of Christ. <laughs> Can you see the commercials? Like two crusaders covered in blood and they're just tired. You know, after a hard day of killing the enemies of Christ, I love nothing more than Heinz Ketchup. In June of 1147, the German crusaders have left Constantinople and they're traveling through Hungary on their way to the Holy Land. And speaking of Hungary, they, raged, they raided and pillaged widely. And the Eastern Christians are getting really, really ticked. Yeah. Hey, we're coming to save you. All we need is all your food. Oh, you can't spare it? Well, maybe if we kill half your family, then you won't mind missing that food so much. In October, we're back up in Spain. Lisbon is captured by the Crusaders and the Portuguese forces under the command of a guy named Enriquez, the first king of Portugal. Uh, also, he's helped by a crusader named Gilbert of Hastings. Now, here's a really interesting thing. He's from Hastings. Uh, Gilbert went on to become Bishop of Lisbon. Uh, also that year, the city of Elmira fell to the Spanish. So this crusade up in Spain, it's working. Um, now when we get to October, late October of 1147, the German crusaders under Conrad III, remember them? They got depleted. Uh, trying to get to Constantinople. They finally get to Constantinople with less than half of their army left. Uh, and then they start pillaging on their way to the Holy Land. Well, uh, they were massacred by the Turks. The Turks bumped into them at a place called Dorileum. Dorileum, I can't say it. A place called Flint. <laughs> And they were obliterated by the Turks. There's almost nobody left in this army. That's in February of 1148. In March, King Louis VII and his army stopped at Italia. Now, this is important. 
when they get there, and they're, they're almost to the Holy Land, huh? When they get there, the king bought passage on boats for himself and some of his nobles. Uh, and then everybody else, he left. The infantry and the non-cavalry, he left there and said, you guys walk, which was the smart thing to do. Except that the entire infantry was obliterated. As soon as the cavalry and the nobles left on their boats, a huge Muslim force showed up and killed every single infantryman there in that city. So the Germans are depleted and the French are depleted. And by the way, they haven't even got there yet. So that army does land uh, over by Damascus in May of 1148, and the Crusaders tried to take Damascus. Their army had uh, forces under the command of Baldwin III. They had Conrad III and his, you know, 12 guys left. But he also did have the heavy cavalry of Louis VII, which had sailed with him. And that's in May. They start the siege of Damascus. In July, they had to abandon it. Why? Because those three leaders, Louis VII, Conrad III, and Baldwin III, would not work together. The quote I read was, quote, they could not agree on anything. This political division among the Crusaders uh, is, is really the issue. Because right when Muslim unity, as in we're going to get into this, starts to grow, the Christian unity utterly collapsed. And that's really the key to this. Uh, what was going on that the Muslim, uh, what do you say, um, armies were being united? We're going to get into that into a se in a second. But what you need to know is the Second Crusade's over. That's it. These guys couldn't work together, so they went home. Nobody would submit to anybody else's leadership. Uh, the last real battle of it was the next year, a crusading army under Raymond of Antioch was destroyed by uh, the son of Zengi. Okay? Um, and Raymond was killed, and, and he fought right till the end. But one of the lieutenants in the Muslim army, right? So you got Zengi, remember them? Uh, one of his lieutenants is named Saladin or Salahadin, however you want to say it. Um, it's big. This guy, we're going to get into him in great detail in just a moment. But what you need to know as uh, we still hold Jerusalem, right? We still hold a lot of these cities. Uh, and in Jerusalem, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre was officially dedicated. The, the Templars finished building it, and it was now open for Christians to pilgrimage to. Okay? So that's the end of the Second Crusade. And you're like, where were the battles? There really weren't that many. There was just slaughter. Uh, the only real battle was when those Germans made that last stand, uh, and they didn't stand very long. Uh, but once they got to Damascus, which they figured that's the first city we got to take, they couldn't take it because they couldn't work together. So everybody went home. Uh, but the reason we went through that is, A, because it's easy, and it the Third Crusade is going to be more intense and it's going to be pretty epic but we got to look at a key figure in the future of the crusades a guy named saladin or salahadin he is one of my favorite historical figures um and before we kind of get into him personally i want you to help you understand as best i can that Salahuddin is going to be the Kurd. He's not Arab. He's Kurdish, right? Which uh, I was going to make a joke about. Um, cheese. Cheese. Yeah. Wisconsin. Uh, yeah. His people moved to Wisconsin where they became famous for cheese. No, uh, Salahuddin uh, is arguably the greatest Muslim leader of all time. And there, I don't know if many people would argue that with me. I really don't. Uh, it would be hard to overstate his importance, but what I want to do is read to you 
some things about how the Europeans felt about Salah ad-Din. If you're like, okay, here's this guy who united Islam in a way no one since Muhammad had. Uh, and frankly, consistently pounded the crusading crusaders, right? So the Europeans must have hated him, right? <coughs> no, they loved him. They loved him. Uh, he achieved a reputation in Europe, Salah ad-Din did, as an, as an incredible leader and a chivalrous knight. Uh, he was known to be unbelievably generous uh, and brilliant. In fact, if you read Dante's Divine Comedy, you'll see that he has like three non-Christians who are, in his vision of heaven, present in limbo because of their greatness. And one of them, Salah Hadin. He, he sees him uh, in heaven, which was shocking for Christianity back then. Different European writings described him as, quote, a true gentleman, beside whom medieval Westerners will always have made a poor showing. Another quote, uh, they referred to him as, quote, the purest hero of Islam. If you go to his tomb today, if you go to Salah Adin's tomb today, you'll see that there's this beautiful marble all over. That was the Germans. They loved him. He kicked their butt. Uh, and they revered him as just a noble, generous, brilliant dude, the best enemy they could have. So they adorned his temple and decorated it and built a massive monument to him. Uh, isn't this crazy? Um, despite the fact that he kicked crusaders' butts like it was a full-time job, he he was just revered. And some of it was because when he, you remember back when the Christians conquered Jerusalem, they killed everybody? Do you remember this? When Salah Hadin took Jerusalem back from the Christians, he gave free passage out of Jerusalem to all the crusader armies. Um, he made them pay a ransom, which was common practice, but only for nobles. No, he let everybody go. Uh, the Greek Orthodox, the Eastern Christians, they didn't have to do anything because they sided with Salah Adin, so they were fine. Uh, he was respected by Christian lords. You remember Richard the Lionheart, who went toe-to-toe -to -toe with Salah Adin numerous times. He praised, uh, King Richard praised him, quote, Salah Adin is a great prince. He is, without a doubt, the greatest and most powerful leader in the Islamic world. Saladin, in turn, thought of Richard as amazing. Quote, there was no man more honorable among the Christians than Richard Lionheart. Uh, after he and Richard pounded out a treaty, Salahadin uh, and him ch exchanged gifts and tokens of respect, mailed each other things. Uh, they never did meet face to face. They met across the battlefield and they sent each other a lot of letters after the war. My favorite thing is this story uh, chronicled by a Christian in April of 1191, right? A Frankish woman, now all that means is European. She might have been French, she might have not, right? But for the Muslims, if you're not, you know, if you're one of those Europeans over here, you're Frankish, okay? Uh, her three-month-old baby had been kidnapped and sold on the slave market. The other Franks urged her, go to Salah Hadin and tell him. So she did. Salah Hadin went with her to the slave market and bought her child back with his own money. And then this is the, the witness who wrote about it. Quote, he, Salah Hadin, gave the child to the mother and she took it with tears streaming down her face. She hugged the baby to her chest. All of us were watching her and weeping. I was standing among them. She suckled her child for some time. And then Salah Hadin gave her his horse and so she could get back to camp. That's him. That's how they saw him. Uh, so I say this just because he, he's interesting. And if you look at right now, uh, much of the, you may remember when the U.S. invaded Afghanistan and Iraq, there was one group that sided, one group of Muslims that sided with the U.S. And who was it? It was the Kurds. 
Right? The Kurds have always seen themselves, and rightly so, of course, as separate from the rest of the uh, from the Arab Muslim world. They're not Arabs, and the Arabs don't like them, and they tend not to like the Arabs. Um, they are fierce. You may have seen, was it you who showed me those TikTok videos of the Kurdish dances? Yeah. Uh, all of this, this is a very old culture, and they have always resisted uh, Arab leadership. They are Sunni. Um, which means they are a distinct minority in the Muslim world. The fact that Salah Adin was able to rise up through the ranks and quite literally take control of the Muslim world as a Kurd is nothing less than shocking. Okay. So we'll take a look at his life now. How are people doing? Good. Well, was there peace in any century? Um, yeah. Um, in terms of what you or I would call the Western world, the, what they call the Pax Romana and the Pax Mongolia, those were two periods of time where there was relative peace. So for the Romans, it was about a 200-year stretch uh, where they had frankly conquered everyone. They didn't really have noteworthy enemies. I mean, you can look at the Persians, of course, but they all stayed away from the Romans and the Romans stayed away from them. It was 150 or so years uh, of relative peace. And then when you have the Mongolians running the largest empire in the history of the world, uh, you certainly had uh, peace. Uh, what kind of peace? Well, the kind where they killed everybody. And, and I'm serious, all right? But there's a story they said that during the reign of Ogadai Khan, okay? So he would... <coughs> he would be uh, Genghis Khan's successor. They said a woman could carry silk and wear a gold crown and walk from Mongolia to Italy and never have to worry about being attacked. You know, that they had that. So those are two times I can think of where there was relative peace. Um, yeah. Who funded these wars? Um, well, the peasants, in a sense. I mean, it depends how you view economics, right? How did it go? Well, it went like this. Uh, there were very few people who owned land, and they owned a lot of land. Uh, like, it wouldn't be uncommon for you to look at an area the size of Ohio in Europe and know one guy owned that. Uh, right? One guy owned that. And what did he do with that? Well, everybody who lived on it worked. And then it all kicked up to him. And each region had their things. Italy had a crap ton of money. It wasn't called Italy, of course, back then. It was an Italian peninsula. But you had all these different little kingdoms there. <clears throat> yeah. Um, oh, in fact, you know what I forgot to mention? And this is... This is to give you a sense of how small the world was at this point in terms of economics. Okay? You remember when I told you that the German army, the big German army, got their butts handed to them and almost all of them killed? The Muslims took so much booty from the Germans that they crashed the precious metals market in the Middle East. They flooded the market with too much precious metal. Uh, isn't that incredible to yeah. think of? Yes. Um, it's just incredible to think of. That's how small the economic world was. And as I may, I think I told you in our first, way back, our first talk about the Crusades, probably four or five shows back, it's going to be the fact that the world is so financially small that ends the Crusades. Everyone figures out we're making a ton of money trading with the Muslims. And the Muslims are figuring out, we're making a ton of money trading with the Christians. Why don't we just do that? <laughs> yeah, it's cheaper to make money than to spend money. And you also have a phenomena of, like, when you look at our national debt, in fact, you want to freak out? If you want Google, Chuck, what is our current national debt? It is unpayable, guys, right? Your grandkids are going to have a worse life because of our debt. And at the same time, what does that debt mean? Nothing. It's money we owe ourselves, yeah. right? It's fascinating to think of. We're doing what a lot of Americans do, our government is. We're credit carding everything, 
$28.43 trillion, which would be equivalent to more than $86,000 for every individual in the U.S. Yeah. How do you like that, folks? Well, they did the same thing back then. <laughs> they just borrowed, 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 borrowed. And if you want to know the end of the story, that's why it all crashes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what are we talking about? Who funded these wars? Oh, so that's where that came from. And you got to remember the Pope at this point, it's not like the Pope now. This was a king who was probably richer than most. Um, and so there was a lot of money. Venice had a ton of money. Anybody who could go to what we call China or the East and bring back silk made an obscene amount of money. Once the Muslims figured out Christians hadn't, hadn't heard of sugar before, oh, they started selling sugar. Yeah, for them it was just a plant that grew that you could grab and chew on. Uh, we figured out all kinds of stuff. So there was a ton of trade, a ton of money being generated, uh, and money being discovered. Yeah? I mean, the Romans obliterated Spain's silver mines way back in the day. But there were still places where we hadn't figured out there was gold and silver to be found. Uh, and frankly, these are slave economies in many ways. They didn't call it slavery. Uh, but so they could make you go mine gold until you're dead of exhaustion. And it's an all-profit industry, right? So there's a ton of money out there uh, and a ton of debt. Right, which you remember when we went through why did they kill all the Templars? Because everybody owed them money. It was that simple. Why did they kill all the Jews? Everyone owed them money. It's it's awful, right? It's yeah. Um, okay. Do you know any good books to recommend for reading about Galileo and Richard the Lionheart? Not really. Uh, forgive me. Um, uh, I, I don't. I don't know a ton about Richard Lionheart. Um, I know Anthony, um, Anthony Hopkins played him in the movie A Lion in Winter. Did you know that? He looked like he was 12. Uh, I love the lion, a lion in Winter. That's about Eleanor of Aquitaine. Um, and that's a fine movie. Like, her boys were unbelievable. She was a good mom. And she raised some of the greatest men Europe ever saw. Uh, and there's a movie about her called A Lion in Winter, because it's her in her old age. Right? And she was a lion. Rough. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so... I think that, oh, and Uncle Lonnie's tuning in from Castle Rock, Colorado. Love you, Uncle Lonnie. We miss you already. Dad and I were so glad we got to see you. Um, Uncle Lonnie always comes around when I'm in a pretty messed up point in my head. And I, I just, I love that dude. Oh, even though he's a jerk. Was that out loud? Okay. So, if you're ready, then we'll dive into Salahadin. How are we doing for time? Okay. I'll try to give less detail than I want, because we only have 20 minutes left. And if we know Salahadin, that'll help us with the next um, crusade. Okay? So, um, let me get there. Salahadin was born into a wealthy, important Kurdish family. And on the night of his birth... His dad took them to Aleppo, and his dad worked then as a servant in a sense, but it's hard to explain. They made money. He wasn't a slave. We would say he was employed. That's what we would say. Uh, quite literally, employed by a powerful Turkish governor in northern Syria. Now, growing up, nobody thought much of him. It's kind of funny uh, when you figure out who he becomes, it's hysterical that any comments on him as a young man were, eh. <laughs> but he had two things that he was super interested in, uh, religious studies and military training. Uh, his formal career began when he joined the staff of his uncle, who uh, was under the command of the successor to Zangi. Remember him, Zangi? Uh, now... He was a part, Salahadin was, as a younger man of three different military expeditions sent into Europe to prevent the Latin Crusaders from taking it. Um, but here was the thing. 
there were three Muslim leaders there, and they were to work together to fight off the Franks, the Crusaders, but they fought each other. Uh, their unity dissolved into violence and assassinations and a power vacuum. And here's where it gets interesting. Salah ad-Din was appointed then commander of the Syrian troops in Engl England, <laughs> Egypt, and as the visor to the caliph there. So uh, the number two guy at 31 years old in 1169. His clear talents and the fanatical loyalty of the men underneath him, the Kurds, are probably the key reasons to his rise to power. Uh, his position got stronger when in 1171, he abolished the weak and unpopular uh, Fatimid Caliph, which was Shiite. And he said, no, we're going back to Sunni in Egypt. And he could get away with that. He was that, people respected him that much. He was able to use Egypt's huge agricultural empire to establish himself in a strong financial base and to grow in power. And he created this small but really disciplined, effective fighting force, something the Muslims struggled with. They were always able to throw a ton of men at the problem, but a lot like the Chinese fought back then. Namely, we'll just outnumber you. You might have superior battle tactics, you might have superior armor and weapons. We got more dudes. And that's quite literally how the Muslims won a lot of the battles they won before this. Well, he was starting to create an elite fighting force with around himself that then began training others. Okay? Now Genghis Khan did the same thing a couple well about 100 years later on the other side of the world. Uh, and there's a real wisdom in that. Uh, starting in 1174 until 1186, he zealously pursued one goal. We will unite Islam. The territories of Syria, northern Mesopotamia, Palestine, and Egypt all came under his rule. How? Great skillful diplomacy and real willingness to use military force if that didn't work. Okay. This is a theme in his life. He wants to negotiate. Let's avoid the fight. But if you make him fight, this is the line I love, quote, swift and resolute military force, right? <laughs> Meaning this is going to be quick and it's going to be clear. And by doing that, he accomplished his, a, his aim. He united Islam, Syria, northern Mesopotamia, Palestine, and Egypt. When's the last time they were on the same page? Oh, I don't know, Muhammad? This guy did it in a short amount of time. His reputation grew because, uh, ready for this? I love this. Quote, gradually his reputation grew among people as a generous and virtuous ruler. A firm ruler, devoid of pretense, licentiousness, or cruelty. This was kind of a hallmark of leaders back then, right? Pretentiousness, uh, licentiousness, wild sexual, sexual activity, uh, and cruelty. He was none of those things. You're going to see this incredibly wealthy man, by the time he dies, has one silver piece that he hasn't given away, which he thought he'd save for his funeral. Uh, and it wasn't enough. Everybody had to throw in. He gave away a tremendous, he was a wildly generous man. His everything he did, by his words and by the testimony people saw him, was inspired by this idea of jihad. We will unite Islam in a holy war. Okay? He believed that Islam will save the world. And it was his duty to spread Islam by any means necessary. And where it couldn't spread, he desired to live in peace. Interesting stuff. Um, 
he worked hard. Any money he got, he would spend on the poor and on building schools. He wanted to build schools of Islam. He founded colleges and he built mosques. He wanted Muslims to return to their spiritual roots. Uh, he was a big believer in what was called moral regeneration, the idea that every day I'm going to be a better man than yesterday. I will regenerate morally, personally, and by doing that, it will inspire others to do so. Right, which if you've listened to me at all, I'm a big believer in. Right, I'm a big believer in that. Don't convert the culture, convert you. Right. Um, so this was a real part of his life through his writings and the testimony of his friends. This was huge to him. I need to be a better man today than I was yesterday. Um, he tried to recreate in all the areas he ruled this uh, first love when Islam exploded out of Northern Africa. He wanted to rekindle that fire. And, uh, you know, he always pointed this out five centuries ago. We conquered the whole known world. We can do it again, but we have to be righteous. We have to be holy, and we got to be tough. And he was all those things. He uh, succeeded in turning a lot of the military in different places in his favor. Uh, and uh, I love this idea. It's a great way to explain that. So there was no shortage of soldiers. There was a shortage of rule, uh, right? That you had a lot of petty tyrants or petty rulers. He swallowed them all up and he didn't have to kill them. Often people would surrender before he got there. Yeah, I'll follow you. Okay, I'll follow you. And it worked. Um, you're going to see when he hits his peak in 1187, he has the entire Muslim world behind him. And they were the equal of the Crusaders, which was always their problem. Yeah, we can throw a million guys at you, but we can't fight like the Europeans can fight. By the time he hits his peak in 1187, they can go toe to toe with any army from Europe and they're going to freight train them. Right. They're going to freight train the European armies who never get anything back until he dies. Okay, and how does he die? Exhaustion, right? Uh, so um, I guess I, I got to stop there because if I start getting too, how are we for time? Oh, dear. All right. Uh, if you have any questions, let me know because we do have some time left. Uh, but I really do think one of the best representations of Salah Hadin that I've seen in film is the director's cut of kingdom of heaven, right? The kingdom of heaven. It shows him as not afraid to kill his enemies when it's time and not afraid to make peace when it's time. Uh, he had the same problem the crusaders did, that he had extremists trying to push him toward extremism. Um, there was a lot of Christians and a lot of Muslims who believe the only way this can ever work is if the other side is dead. And that was one of his struggles within uh, the Islamic people he ruled. He had extremists pushing him. He tended to show mercy whenever he could uh, for a really good reason. Why? <laughs> Why kill everybody? Uh, we can do this. We can live in peace and be prosperous. And his thing was, let's unite Islam before we start trying to convert more Christians. And by converting, they tended to mean conquering, just like we did. Right? I'm not crapping on them or crapping on us. Um, so someone said, so we fought only on limited basis. Yeah, to some extent, particularly at the beginning, he fought a lot. Uh, he fought Muslim army against Muslim army. He had to show his steel. Uh, I think this is okay to say. You had Christians who believed this, but we're focusing on Muslims right now. You have Muslims who really believed, well, all we got to do is show up and Allah will give us the battle. And they believed that enough to die for that belief. 
he got that that wasn't true, okay? Now, Christians had the same problem. Oh, well, just got to show up, and the Lord's going to give us a miracle. And there's the Lord going, hey, you keep me out of this, right? Uh, but that was a problem for him. And one of the ways he solved it, as we'll see at the next crusade, is sometimes just by showing up, and letting the Christians see this massive army led by the greatest leader any of them had ever seen. And then they'd go, you know what, Salah Hadin? Let's make peace. Yeah, let's make peace. Um, but that, again, caused tension in his own army. Uh, did, did that answer? Yeah, you know, Richard Lionheart will say this at one point. Salah Hadin never enters a battle he's not sure he can win. Right. That and that's genius. You might think, well, that's common sense. No, it's not. If you know your military history, you know, that's actually rare. Most military leaders are wild optimists about what can be accomplished. He wasn't. He was utterly practical. And any time they had a battle, any time Muslims died fighting against him or for him, it was always noted he made sure they were buried together and he made sure everyone saw him cry. He didn't want Muslims to die. Okay. Really, I know it sounds like, oh, you know, you got a thing from, I do. I think this is one of the greatest men God gave uh, in that age. Uh, Father, thank you for walking us through this. Oh my gosh, I'm so glad you're enjoying it. I'm worried you're being nice. No? All right. And again, don't worry. I'm not going to get into this much detail after we get through the next crusade. Right? I'll go four, five, six, and seven as quick as I can. Um, yeah. Okay. Speaking of good books, I'm reading the Space Trilogy by C.S. Lewis. Oh, Out of the Silent Planet. Uh, yeah. You know, I read those in 1991. Um, and I wish I would have read them better. I think I didn't understand a lot of it. I think I thought I was just reading a fantasy book. And it's not till later, every once in a while, I think about what I read in there where I'm like, wow, Lewis was a freaking genius. Yeah, man. Okay. Well, it looks like that's all we got for today, doesn't it? Yeah. Okay. Well, gosh, guys, sorry to knock off early. Um, it's not too early. Not, no. And uh, just know this, you now have, I think, a very solid base of what led to the Crusades, the first crusade, and now the second. Um, and I'm excited to walk with you through the third. Uh, I really am. Uh, but thank you for your interest in this. And uh, start letting us know what we need to talk about next, right? What Christian or Catholic topic would you like to hear about next? Because we're getting to the end of the Crusades. I think I've only got three, four more shows to go on this one. So let us know uh, how can you remember when you read books. Oh, that one's easy, because uh, I was flying to Poland. Uh, I was going to Poland in 1991. I can even tell you, it was June, late June, early July. And the flight to Poland was, I believe, 383 hours. <laughs> I hate, so hate being in So you were what, 21. 21. What were you doing there? Uh, two things. I saw St. John Paul II. It was World Youth Day in Czestochowa, and I worked a potato farm. How long did you stay? About two months. Really? Potato Jimniaki in Polish. You were still in college? Or graduated? Yeah, I guess I was. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what I, I remember a few things, right? One is... If you name any farm animal, I'm serious. I think I can tell you how to say it in Polish. Isn't that weird? I couldn't make screaming goat. Go. I don't know how to say goat. Ah. Sorry. <laughs> no one had any goat. That's it in Polish. Krova is cow. Okay. What's another farm animal? Chicken, kogut. That's rooster. Okay. Horse. Shoot. Kaba. <laughs> Cub, uh, Johnson, sheep. <laughs> sheep is baron. What's the? What's your best memory from Poland? I'd say the craziest memory, okay. not the best. Okay. Okay. We'll Seriously, <laughs> so we were sleeping on the floor, right, outhouse and everything, because the Soviets had just left, and of course, communism ruins everything. Uh, and truly, I mean, it was. 
Oh my God. Uh, don't let anyone ever convince, oh, it'll work this time. Yeah, 30 million dead. No, it won't. <laughs> Do you know that the cycle of communism? This could really work. 30 million dead. We didn't do it right. Let's try it again. Um, August night, huh? Koza is goat. Koza, nice. Okay. Uh, Yapko is egg. Goronsa is hot. Jimno is cold. Pivo is beer. Droga is road. Riba is fish. I don't know. Vodka. <laughs> it's good. <laughs> it's good. Um, oh, do you know how to say tractor? Tractor. <laughs> um, so, what were we talking about? Oh, August 19th. Yes. Um, they wake us up, and it's like, you know, again, we're sleeping on a cement floor in sleeping bags. And they treat us, they're so sweet, and everybody's dirt poor. And they wake us up in a panic, and they are packing our stuff. There's no lights, we don't have electricity. Uh, but they're trying to get lights, and it was just, what's going on? Everybody's talking to Polish, and they are clearly freaked. Uh, there was, like, two cars in our area, and people kind of shared them. Both of them were out front waiting for us. How many of you? Uh, Tommy, Teddy, Carolina, what's her name? Christina, me, Jenny, six. They pack us in, I and mean, you were packed always. We were, they, the Poles are big people, we were bigger. Um, and Jenny can speak Polish, and the long and short of it is, what we were told, Gorbachev is dead. The Soviets are coming back. We have to get you home. And they were terrified. All the people were coming out of their house. The communists are coming back. Uh, we got to the airport, and it was a freak show. Um, it was as much panic as uh, second most panic. I've like group panic. And, you know, of course the Soviets took all their guns. So it's not like, I mean, there's just nothing left. And, um, what we were told is Gorbachev was beheaded and communism's back and they're on their way. And we were trying to get on a plane out of there, but so was everybody. And then there was an announcement. This is how I remember it. This is a long time ago. There was an announcement, and people kept yelling for everyone to shut up. They kept repeating some announcement, and blah, blah, blah. Well, no, it turned out Gorbachev, the army, sided with him. You may remember this. And uh, what did they call it? Glasnost, I think they called it. Was it called Glasnost was restored? Yeah. Uh, we're going to transition out of a failed social, economic, political system, and everybody just got buried that night. I mean, it was just parties in the streets. Um, and then Gorbachev being on TV really helped. And it's not even like they liked Gorbachev, they just hated the Soviets. Uh, there were all these statues of Lenin, right, that got toppled over when, they, when the Soviets left, and every day I was there, if you walk by one, they spit on it. Um, you can't imagine. Like, if you ever want to meet someone who hates communism, just meet someone who grew up in it. There's nothing you hate more than they hate communism. Um, and my God, uh, that was scary. I remember being unnerved, but what really, and I know this is terrible, especially with all of our troubles, okay? And I'm not, I don't know what to think on the topic, but I do remember thinking, I wish we were armed. I wish there was some means for us to defend ourselves. Uh, but of course there wasn't, they took all the guns. Um, and not, you know, and people always say, oh, you couldn't go toe to toe with a standing army. I don't know, ask the, ask the Afghanis about that. Yeah, ask the Vietnamese. Yeah, but be this as it may, uh, that was incredible and intense. That was probably my most intense. My favorite memory was the day before John Paul II spoke in Chestahova. Uh, we got there like 6 a.m. the day before, and we just stayed up in this park all night. And we were, it was packed, and we were there were kids from Germany and Italy with us and we just formed this little group waiting 24 hours and some, well more than 24 hours, 
for the Pope. And of course, we didn't plan, so there was no food or water. Uh, and it was like, oh shoot, we should have thought this through. Uh, but we did fine. And we had just a, man, it was incredible. I've never seen anything like it. Because uh, you might be used to World War Youth Day. No one was used to it yet. This idea of millions and millions of young people from around the world just coming to see the Holy Father. You know, that was really incredible. Um, yeah, man. Was that the first time you saw him in person? Yeah, yeah. I, I have to tell you, I got to spend like a half a day with him. I told you about that, yeah. That was in 94. Well, that was crazy. But uh, yeah, Poland was incredible. What beautiful people. Um, and again, you know, I don't know if you ever read, like, when I was a kid, the big thing were quote-unquote Polak jokes, where the Polish person is the stupid person. And there's actually a fascinating history behind those jokes. Uh, they were the brainchild of a guy named Goebbels, who was Hitler's uh, propaganda minister. And Europe really revered Poland uh, for a lot of reasons. Poland was before World War II and through most of European history, kind of the cultural epicenter of Europe. They produced all the great mathematicians and, and musicians and poets. Uh, Copernicus was Polish. Uh, you could just go through and almost everybody that you, every genius mathematician you hear about from Europe, they're from Poland. And art and culture was a big deal. Uh, it was a safe place for Jews to live, relatively. Uh, the safest place in Europe by far, which again, doesn't mean, didn't mean much. <laughs> they were the first democracy in Europe. They built the first telescope, public telescope in Europe. Um, it would be hard to explain how respected and revered the Poles were, but they're a country that has wide open borders. So every army that wants to goose step through would do it. The Russians, the Germans, the Nazis, uh, the Czechs. The, I mean, you just name it. And But what's amazing is <clears throat> when the Nazis invaded Poland, you remember the Blitzkrieg, right? That they threw the kitchen sink at them and the whole idea is overwhelm them. Like they took France in what, six days or something insane like that? So the big thing, like, and I mean this, when I was a kid, I remember, I think, I mean, who knows, I was a kid, our history teacher showing us these Polish cavalry on horses charging the, the Nazi tanks. Do you remember this? And it was like, look how stupid they are, right? Well, here's the thing. They broke through. Did you know that? I was never taught that. They got through and started slaughtering the German infantry behind the tanks. Uh, the Polish hussars were the terror of Europe forever. Those crazy brave men, and the, the German army is reported, Nazi I should say, to have started to leave, right? Like, oh no thanks, yeah? Um, and the reputation of the Poles was such that it became this, we need to portray the Poles as dumb. Uh, like this was a concerted effort uh, we got to show the Poles as stupid. We got because these weren't just Germans fighting in the Nazi army. They were Swiss. They were uh, all over Europe. Joined that army or were conquered into that army, and they didn't want them too respectful of the Poles. And so that whole battle was rewritten. Uh, if you ever get a chance, there's a book called um, "The Eagle Unbowed." Um, and it's about Polish military history, and it will shred your brain to read how much of what you and I were not taught about the Poles is because of how heavy the German influence in our country is. Yeah, that uh, you got to remember, and I, you know, my family, both sides from Germany, uh, and I can tell you with shame, most the reason we entered World War II so late is because the German Catholics would have went nuts. Right, they, no, they, they did not want us in that war. And uh, German immigrants to this country are the number one in terms of size, more than Irish, more than Italian, more than Poles. 
uh, and they exerted a tremendous amount of social pressure, and they bought into the whole thing coming out of Germany. Oh, Poles are stupid, right? They're stupid people, Polacks, right? That whole thing. Um, but I'm sorry. Anyway, uh, if you ever, yeah, I don't know how I got onto that. Sorry. What was your question? My mom's parents were Poles. They were so knowledgeable. You got me crying. Yeah, I'm telling you, the best educated people in Europe until communism just destroyed. Like, communists don't want you to learn. Um, uh, yeah, they don't. You have to be uneducated to buy it or fooled. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, okay, stop. Yes. So, yeah, hey, if you're from Poland, if your family's from Poland, you just won't believe the beautiful history you've got to be proud of. Um, and arguably, well, arguably a top five pope in the history of our church. I say number two or three uh, ever, right, was from Poland. And I don't know if you know this. There was a prophecy many years before that we would have a Slavic pope. Did you know that? Somewhere in the beginning of that 700-year run of Italian popes, there was a prophecy. I should look it up. Uh, and I just remember the line, his voice will ring out like a bell. And it's just this idea that someday the Slavs will give us a pope that will save the church. And I think that's what John Paul II really did. I don't know. Yeah. If you want a fun book about Poland... It's very educational, but it's written as a historical fiction. James Mishner has a book called Poland, I think, and that was fantastic as well. There's a lot of good stuff about Polish history. Uh, there's a book called Fire and Sword. Uh, in fact, hold on. Are people bored? I can shut up about all this. Oh, yeah, here you go. All right, here's the three best Polish history books, okay? They're a series uh, with Fire and Sword. Okay, you can't buy these, sorry, in English. Uh, the Deluge, okay, and uh, The Deluge, part two, right? So these are, it's a three-part series uh, about Poland, and it's phenomenal. Getting an English translation was just about impossible, uh, but I got a buddy who has too much money and is ha am from Poland, and he was like, you actually want those books? Yes, so he got them for me. They're astounding. Those might be the most expensive books I own. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, what were we talking about? I guess that's it, hey? Is it time? Yeah. Oh, dear, now I went over. I'm sorry. Okay. Sorry I babbled at the end here. Never get me started on Poland. Okay. In the year 1848, the famous Polish poet, Bob <clears throat> wrote verses in comment of the ah, he made a strong statement about the future coming of a Slavic Pope, quote, who would be much stronger than an Italian one. Um, pope John Paul II very much liked the poem and gave orders that it be translated into Italian. Oh, that's hysterical. Right. Leave it to JP. And gave orders to translate into Italian so that it could be read on the 20th anniversary celebration of his election. That's hysterical. Because, <laughs> you know, the Italians were ticked. Yeah. And I think, like, both Italians that were actually going to church that year were really upset, too. Right. <laughs> you know what you call This was a big joke when I was in Italy. What do you call a Catholic in a church? What do you call a Catholic at Mass in Italy? A tourist. <laughs> They're not from Italy, you know. Uh, and then you have Poland, right, who went toe-to-toe -to -toe culturally with the Soviets. It was the only country where the Soviets were not able to totally suppress the Catholic Church. Because they were, seriously, I'm dead serious. The Polish stance was, you'll have to kill all of us. Right? I mean... <laughs> Holy cow. Think about that. That was their resistance. Okay, we'll, we'll submit to your stupid laws and to your autocratic rule and all that. But if you take church from us, you have to kill all of us. Wow. Yeah. All righty then. So there was Second Crusades and apparently a little history of Poland for you. Uh, <laughs> Um, and um, tomorrow, 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 we'll look at the Third Crusade, and I'll maybe, hopefully, be able to do the whole thing, and uh, that's what I got. Yeah. All right. Salad pray.
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Okay, Jesus. Thank you today in a very special way for St. Bartholomew, one of your apostles, who's one of the pillars of our church. We also call him Nathaniel. Whichever name we call him, thank you. What a beautiful man who suffered horrendous torture to bring your word and your love to people. And again, Lord, we look at the violence we've done in your name and we're sorry. We do ask you to protect us from those who hate us and to give us the courage when it's fight, to fight when it's time to fight, to not fight when it isn't time to fight, and the humility and wisdom to know which one is which. And for all the ways, Lord, we do violence with our words or our actions or even our thoughts, we're sorry. We want to be like you. Father, we ask that you bless and protect our kids starting their school year. Bless and protect all our teachers. And help us, Lord, in any situations that we're confused about right now. Father, you know those people we love very much and we worry about. And you know all those circumstances in our lives that we fret about. We give them all to you because we love you and we trust you. And may Almighty God bless you all, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. My Kung Fu is strong. I'll see you people tomorrow. Peace. Is it over? No, it's never over.